0: Hello and welcome to This Speech Life, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, exploring all things related to school-based SLP practice. I'm your host, Caitlin Lopez, MSCCC SLP, a pediatric SLP with 10 years experience in the school setting. Each week, we will cover three need-to-know aspects of that episode topic two resources related to the topic, and one actionable strategy for tomorrow. Hello and welcome to today's podcast episode entitled The One About Language, Acquisition, and Poverty. We have the incredible Dr. Elise Davis-McFarland with us today to jump into this discussion. Before we get started, I am Caitlin Lopez, the host of the podcast, This Speech Life. If you have any questions today for Dr. Davis McFarland, please pop them into the chat or the Q&A box, and I will make sure to get them to her at the appropriate time. And as always, just a reminder that if you do need live CEUs for today, please log into your course portal at the conclusion of today's course and make sure to complete all modules, especially the one entitled quiz, to make sure you get your live credit for today. All right, I think that takes care of all of the housekeeping items. It doesn't. I need to also report our financial and non-financial disclosures before we begin. I am Caitlin Lopez, the host of the podcast, The Speech Life, and I receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com for this episode. I do not have any non-financial relationships or disclosures to report, and Dr. Elise Davis McFarland receives an honorarium for being a guest on this episode. She has no relevant non-financial relationships or disclosures to report. All right, now I can get to the good stuff. I am so excited to introduce to all of you, if you don't know who she is already, Dr. Elise Davis McFarland, She is a pediatric SLP whose professional career included teaching at the University of Houston and development of a graduate communications and disorders program at the Medical University of South Carolina. Her areas of research and publication include speech and language development in infants and children with HIV AIDS, multicultural issues in language assessment, literacy development, and pediatric dysphagia. Her interest in international practice led to a Rotary Fellowship which allowed her to teach in the speech therapy program at the University of Southern Africa in, forgive me if I say this incorrectly, here in Kura, South Africa. Her interest in speech and hearing services for children in poverty is the result of her work with HIV as well as her work in Africa and development of a communication sciences and disorders and undergraduate program in at the University of Guyana. Dr. Davis McFarland received honors of the South Carolina Speech, Language, and Hearing Association. She is an ASHA fellow and she served as president of ASHA in 2018. And I am just really excited that she has agreed to join us for this hour to dive into language acquisition and impacts of poverty. I was sharing with Dr. Davis McFarland just before we began that this is something that I've really been interested in the past couple of years, because I've worked in what we would probably call, you know, lesser served populations and school districts. And so I'm really interested to hear what she has to share for us. So Dr. Davis-McFarland, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Caitlin. I'm pleased to be here with you.
0: All right. So let's just jump in since we only have an hour. What are three things that school-based or pediatric SLPs need to know about language acquisition and poverty?
1: Well, there are a couple of things. One is, first of all, that there are different types of poverty. And so all children who come from poverty backgrounds are not necessarily the same. There's, first of all, something that we refer to as situational poverty. And that is poverty that is a result of a particular situation. And the pandemic is a good example of that people lost their jobs during the pandemic. And so families that may have had financial means may not have that anymore. But what we see with that is, first of all, in many instances, we're talking about people who are educated and who have had certain experiences that give them a different perspective in terms of education, in terms of teaching children, in terms of what it is that they think their children should know. And so that's one type of poverty. Another is what we refer to as generational poverty. And that is families who've been in poverty for at least two generations. And they may not have people in their families who have benefited from education. They are very often very highly mobile. There is a lot, there may be a lot of financial insufficiency. And so one of the things that I think is important for school SLPs to know is that, first of all, there are different types of poverty. And just because a child doesn't have resources does not mean that they necessarily experience the same thing as other children who are without resources. Another thing I think that SLPs should know is how to evaluate the research that we see with children who are coming from poverty backgrounds. And there are things that we read and and even research that may tend to indicate that children who come from poverty backgrounds do not have good language facility, that they have difficulty learning, that there are not as many words in those homes as there are more affluent families. And we need to read and understand that that research in very realistic ways. For one thing, children who are raised in poverty or come from poverty backgrounds, in many instances have rich language ability. It is not, however, the language of the school, and that is what children may come to school lacking, but they can certainly learn that. What we as speech language pathologists are responsible for doing is to determine whether or not this child does have a language system, has been able to learn language, if so, what language they've learned, and then how it is that we can help them develop the language that they need for school. So those are three things that, that are really important, I think, in terms of working with children who grow up in poverty circumstances.
0: Thank you for bringing those points up, especially the one about evaluating research. I know that there's that really famous study that was
1: done. The hart Risley study. Yes.
0: Yes. 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 And, you know, I've seen a lot of discussion over that lately about how to truly evaluate that study. That has been eye-opening for me. So thank you for bringing up how to evaluate the research and what that looks like. And then the other point that you brought up, you know, which ties into that is understanding that these students do have a language system. Right and they do have the ability to learn. So I guess my next question would be, if that's the case, are these students that we would necessarily be working with that wouldn't necessarily need special education?
1: They may very well need speech therapy, why? Because they don't necessarily have the language that they will need for school. For example, learning to read and having the language background that will enable literacy. But what we want to know about those children is, first of all, whether or not they have the capacity to learn language. And, you know, it's pretty easy to assess that just by talking to them. And the other is, if there are aspects of language that they do not know, that they don't have, do they have the potential to be able to learn and so the way that we get to all of this is, first of all, by using, you know, not depending completely on standardized tests, because we know, you know, the, the issues and the pitfalls with standardized tests, even those that are as well-developed as they can be, and even those that may reflect children of diverse backgrounds in their standardization population, are they actually children who are coming from backgrounds that are more impoverished than other children. So that's one thing that we want to know. But the other thing we want to do is use more process-dependent evaluation methods. Those are things that will determine whether or not the child can use the skills that he or she has in order to learn the language that we probably want to teach. What was the other thing that I wanted to mention? There was one other thing. Oh, the other thing is the potential for learning. And of course, that comes in with a dynamic assessment. We want to give the child information that they're completely unfamiliar with, like words that we've made up, labels that we can affix to something and find out whether or not the children can comprehend that. It's something they've never heard before. I give the child something that looks like this and I say, this is a bra or this is a taub. You've never heard the word taub before. This is a taub and this is a shy, and then see whether or not the child, after you've introduced four or five of those nonsense words with objects, when you show the child the object again, can they remember those names? And if so, that does tell you, that gives you an impression that this child is able to learn, learn things that they are that they are completely unfamiliar with. And so that's one of the things that we want to know about all children, When we evaluate them, but especially children who are coming from diverse backgrounds.
0: Thank you. Thank you for that. Really using process dependent measures, I can see I've started using those a lot more with all of my students. You know, it gives us so much more information. And I think that this is a piece I know Faye Murray was on, Dr. Faye Murray was on the podcast a couple episodes ago, and she talked about how you know, a standardized measure, and I feel very firmly about this, a standardized measure should not determine goals. It's only to determine students who miss these particular pieces are more likely to have a language disorder as opposed to, oh, this is one thing that they don't know, so we need to write a goal. And I think that the more that we realize that and talk about it, then the more we dig down deep with some of these initial evaluations and work on process dependent measures, I think it will give us so much more information about a student than just the standardized piece. And like you said, you know, a lot of our students that come from impoverished populations, they have a lot of different cross-sectional pieces that our standardized measures don't take
1: into account. That's right, that's right, that's very true. And you know, if one of the things that I advocate is relationships. One of the things that will help a child who's in poverty have more of an opportunity to overcome poverty is relationships. And one of the things that becomes really important in terms of learning is relationships. And that is, we really have to have, one of the reasons that we need to know more about poverty and more about children who live in poverty is that that's what allows us to develop a relationship with them. And that is knowing, you know, knowing something about their background, knowing about their family, knowing about where they live, knowing about some of the issues that are attendant to, to living in poverty. And I think we can all, as speech language pathologists, talk about children that we really have developed relationships with. And that certainly is important. But obviously, one of the ways that we do that is by knowing something about the children and really understanding their environment, their aspirations, and also, you know, their their mothers, their fathers, their caregivers. What is it that they want for their children? And how do they achieve that? One of the things that I often do when I'm working with mothers is to say, what is it that you want? What is it that you want for Kyle? What is it that you want for Samantha? What is it that you want for your child? And when they tell me, especially if they're going to be in therapy, I will say to them, you know, what we're doing, what I'm doing with your child, what your child's going to be learning is going to help them become a teacher, if that's what they want, is going to help them win, is going to help them have in life what it is that you want them to have. And sometimes I, you know, I explain to them the importance of being able to communicate effectively with anyone. And I may talk to them about code switching, explaining what that is. There may be a difference between the language that your child uses on the playground at home and the language that's required in school. But this is why, and this is how we're going to learn it. And this is what we're going to be doing. And so having mom or dad, grandmother, auntie, whoever, understand what it is that we're doing and what it is that we're trying to achieve and why can really make a difference in terms of their support and their embracing of what it is that we want to achieve with their child.
0: Absolutely. I was shaking my head in agreement with so many of the things that you were saying. It resonated with me, especially that piece of relationship and knowing the Mm -hmm. students I think that this is something my previous district that I worked in was Compton outside of, you know, in LA, Compton Unified School District. And something that really kind of bugged me, one of my SLP friends, you know, she would almost treat the students and the community that we were living in as though it was something exotic, Mm -hmm. you know, because she was not from outside and I'm not from Compton, I did not grow up, you know, in Compton, but it's something that I think, yes, it is important to, I would drive around the streets of the school just to see where do my students live? What are things that they, where are the playgrounds that they play in or the lack of playgrounds that are there? Mm -hmm. You know, what do I see that are not just liabilities, but assets to this community too? And I think that that, what you were saying is knowing the student and knowing the family. And it's so beautiful that that question is, what is it that you want? I think sometimes, especially as an outsider into a culture and a community, I can look at something and say, oh, I think that this is a great idea for your student, but maybe culturally that doesn't make sense. Or maybe the family says, you know, this is a particular need within our culture that we really want our student to be able to do X, Y, and Z. You know, maybe it's Who knows? I can't think of anything in my head, but I really think that that is such a a powerful point of getting to know students and getting to know families and seeing, especially if we're not from the community that we are working in and seeing the assets of the community and not just the liabilities.
1: Exactly. And understanding, you know, that there are many things in that community, although it may be very different from the community where I live, where you live. But there are many things that are assets. And, you know, one of the things you find when you ask a parent, what is it that you want for your child, is it very often it's the same thing that you want for yours. It's the same thing that your parents wanted, you know, my parents wanted for me and that anybody wants for their child. And it's a, a question, you know, that's important. And it really brings the, you know, the parent or the caregiver into the process because, You know, I care about what you want. I want your child to have what you want your child to have. And this is what we're going to do to try to achieve that. My experience has been that that can be very important. Very important. And I found that one of the ways to achieve that is through ethnographic assessment. And that is, you know, that begins with an ethnographic interview, you know, finding out as much as you can about the family about parents, about what it is they want, about the child. You know, what is your perception of your child? What, you have three children, this child is the youngest. How is this child's development similar to your other two children's development? And, you know, when we can ask questions like that, very often, it really allows parents to get a frame of reference for what you're, you know, for what it is that you're trying to get across to them. In other words, you know, I've had parents that say, well, you know, he did not, you know, he doesn't have the words that his brother had when he was his age, or he isn't able to do some of the things that the other children his age are doing. But in many instances, parents don't know what to do with that. They don't, they don't know what to do with it. They don't know what to do about it. And so, you know, we as speech language pathologists can certainly give them a frame of reference, and begin to help them not only understand, but to see what might be done, what is possible.
0: Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think that that I can't tell you how many times I've heard a family say, "Well, I don't really know. I just know they're not like,
1: yes, yeah. other
0: kids or they're not like their cousin or their brother or thank so thank you for that. I think that that is helpful. Be, and that also empowers the family too, and lets them know we're hearing them we're seeing exactly. with family, which again speaks to your point of building that relationship
1: and that you know that becomes so important because you know we need parents support for what we do we need to have things reinforced you know we need them to do some work at home and so you know I always like to talk to parents and do an ethnographic interview and you know really get to know try to know something about them also, so that we do have their support and understanding. Obviously, if they understand, they're a lot more likely to be our partners in all of this. And that's what we want. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. So we've dove into three things and we've expanded on quite a few things there of things that we need to know. Do you have resources for us if we want to learn more or things we can apply to our practice?
1: Well, you know, one of the things that I, I always recommend is learning about dynamic assessment and really trying to get proficient in doing dynamic assessment. And I think some great examples of that are on the website, the Leaders Project website with Dr. Katherine Crowley at the Teachers College. She gives demonstrations. She talks about the process, how it's done. And I think that's an excellent resource. I think another one is the Hider book, Culturally Responsive Practices in Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences. And she and Salas Provence, the co-author, have just come out with a second edition, which is updated. I think that's a great resource. Lots of good information there about evaluation, assessment, and clinical intervention. So I think that's great. Another one that I really like is entitled Multicultural Student Students with Special Language Needs, Practical Strategies for Assessment and Intervention. And that's by Rosemary McKibben. And it's published by the Academic Communication Associates. But that also is a very good and excellent resource, I think.
0: Did you know that SpeechTherapyPD.com has weekly live and interactive webinars We are the fastest growing CE provider. Subscribe today to get access to over 750 different courses in audio or video format. All right, thank you. Can you share those names just one more time for everyone?
1: Certainly. The first is dynamic assessment. And if you find on the internet, the Leaders Project at Teachers College in New York, or just Google Dr. Catherine Crowley, C-R-A-W-L-E-Y. You'll get to her, her work. The book, the second book, yes, The Leaders Project. The second book is Culturally Responsive Practices in Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences. And if any of your viewers are recently out of their master's degrees, then they may very well have had that as a textbook. And the authors are Yvette Heider, H-Y-T-E-R, and Salas Provence, that's a hyphenated name, S-A-L-A-S-P-R-O-V-A-N-C-E. And that's published by Plural Publishing. And then the final book is Multicultural Students with Special Language Needs. Practical strategies for assessment and intervention. And that's published by Academic Communication Associates.
0: Thank you so much. Dr. Heider is such a wealth of information. Mm-hmm. I have taken her courses here on speechtherapytg.com. Oh, okay. And she's so brilliant.
1: Her her work with children who've been affected by trauma is also very good. And we're seeing more and more of that because we're getting more and more aware of things that we may have overlooked in the past that indicate that a child has experienced trauma. And so her work in that area is excellent. And that's another reason that I really advocate for ethnographic interviews because when you do those, it can very often allow you to get information that you would not have gotten without that type of an interview that might clue you to some things that have gone on in the child's life that may have resulted in the child experiencing trauma. So again, the ethnographic interviews are excellent, not only in terms of assessing speech and language issues, but also in finding things that may not pop out so quickly.
0: Absolutely, thank you. And thank you for those resources. I highly encourage everyone to reach out to those resources, the Culturally Responsive Practices by Haider and Celeste Provence is really great. So thank you for those. So now that we know you've given us a little bit about some actionable strategies like ethnographic assessment, what are some other things that we can do to work with students that, and language acquisition for our impoverished students?
1: Well, I think a couple of things. One of the things that we often have to work with students on is literacy, learning to read. And we find that one of the things that is really important, and I, I heard a, a researcher say this not long ago, but you know, children's brains are much more <laughs> complicated than the than the adult brain. And the example that he gave is your hand. And, you know, a a three-year-old's hand looks like my hand, only it's smaller, but it's, you know, it's the same hand, just like our brains. But what children need in order to learn is a lot of repetition over and over and over again. Children need to hear things, need to see things, Need to experience things over and over again so that you know the neurons that are firing develop patterns. And that's one of the reasons that children want to hear the same stories again, why they say, you know, they want the same nursery rhymes again, and why all of that is very repetitive, but that is how children learn. And so one of the things, you know, that's important, especially again when we work with parents, and that's something that I advocate very highly. And that is to, you know, let parents know why it's important to read to their children, why it's important that they, you know, encourage their children to ask questions and why, why help them understand why it is that their children do ask so many questions. And that is that very often, you know, you have to say the same thing over and over again, but that is the way that they learn. And so, you know, working with parents becomes very, very, very important. And we have to look at different parenting strategies. And, you know, sometimes SLPs say to me, "Why? well, you know, why is that important? Well, because that's how you know what's going on at home. And that's how you know what, to what extent and how what you're doing with a child is going to be, first of all, appreciated, but secondly, reinforced. At home. And so, you know, we need to show parents what it is or tell parents exactly what it is that we're doing. If I'm working with literacy with a child, I want the parent to see the books. I want the parent to understand how the reading process unfolds, where we begin, where we're trying to get to. And, you know, I want experiences, things that I introduce the child to, to be real life experiences things from that child's environment, from his or her neighborhood, if we're going to make up a story about whatever, I'm encouraging the child to talk to me or to write about or explain something that's going on in their environment, in their home, in their neighborhood, at their church, at their playground, things that they're familiar with, and then we build on what it is that this child's real life experiences are. Using objects that the child is familiar with and using those objects to introduce something that's new and different, that's similar, but is different in terms of expanding the child's horizons and the child's experiences. Role-playing is something that I think is really important. Show me what you do when the ice cream truck comes along. What is it that you like? What's your favorite thing on the ice cream truck? And what does your brother like? What does your sister like? What is it that you don't like? Well, why don't you like peanut butter popsicles? Tell me about that. And so I'm always you know, we're always trying to use things that the child is aware of and use those things to expand and build on, to introduce new things to the child. Technology, of course, is very, is really important now, maybe too much of an extent, but, you know, using videos, using books that have pop-ups, but anything that will attract the child's attention. But the first thing is that we have to know about the child's life in order to be able to expand the child's horizons. And the best place to begin is where the child is and with things that the child is familiar with. Another thing that we have to do is teach children a more formal language register because they've often come to us with what we would refer to as an informal language register. Why? Because that's what works where they are. And so explaining to children the language of of school as opposed to the language of home, not making any value, any value judgment, but just saying, if you want to win at school, these are the words that we use. This is the way we put words together. When you want to win at home, this is the words that you use. This is how we put these words together. But explaining, because children may not understand why there has to be a difference. I had a little boy to tell me once, I'm very popular where I live. Everybody understands me. Why do I have to be different at school? Well, that's a very good question. And we need to be able to explain the difference. And even if children don't ask, we need to explain to them why it is that the words that we're teaching them, the words that they're reading, are in fact different perhaps than some of the words that they use, some of the words that they hear, some of the words that they learn at home. But this is what we do in school and it's a little different than what you may do at home, but it becomes important that they be able to, that they have those differences and that they understand why those differences are, are important. Building the vocabulary of literacy, Obviously, the sight words, that's what we're, that's what children are going to begin with. And so, you know, children will need repeated exposure to those words. They need active engagement with those words. We need to provide in therapy activities that allow them to use those words, become familiar with them. We need to know, obviously, what's going on in the classroom. And then we can build on that in the therapy session in terms of, you know, helping them to be familiar and be comfortable and teaching them the various ways in which we can use those words and helping them to understand the reading process and why that's important.
0: We have a question from Stephanie. Can you model how you explain more of the why school language is different? Yes, to when at school. But some kids ask why, and I'd love your expertise to tell more to kids.
1: More about why the language of school is different? I think that's the question. Well, there are a couple of reasons. One, obviously, is what it is that they're learning to read is not necessarily going to be the same language that they hear at home but for me it has always been almost sufficient to be able to tell a child that talk about the differences between home and school is one thing what it is that you do you know when you're playing at home when you're at you know when you're in your home talking to your parents talking to your friends talking to your your siblings Some of the language is the same, but not all of it. There are words that you're introduced to in school that are different. Why is that important? Because in order to learn to read, you have to be familiar with these words. And I also tell children who are very young, now you're learning to read. But after a while, you're going to have to be able to read in order to learn. Because the way you learn is going to change. And so you want to be a smart kid and you want to be able to do what is required or what is necessary in order for you to be a winner at school. And I I often use that word, be a winner. And I say, and when I say I want you to be a winner, I mean, I want you to be able to do everything that anybody else in your class can do. And I want you to be comfortable doing it. And I want you to like it. And so one of the things that we're doing here in therapy is not only teaching your learning, but I also want you to like what we're doing here. And in many instances, I will ask children, you know, do you like this? How can I help you to like it better? What can we do to make this better for you? What can I do to make you like this more? And in many instances, that will work
0: absolutely thank you i remember in fourth grade our teacher gave us the example of video games and how you have to do certain things to win the video game and that's the same thing at school we have to play by the rules at school and that is using you know appropriate sentences and writing our sentences a certain way and just like what you were saying and that winning winning a video game just like winning our english paper <laughs> or winning our report, you know, it really worked for me as a kid. So thank you for for that example. We do have a question from Lisa. She said, parental support is so important. How do you handle the lack of support you may encounter in some struggling, often broken families?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And one of the things, you know, one of the things I advocate is one of the things i like to do. I like to meet parents- in their environment i'll make a home visit i will call and ask if i can come by at their convenience i've even been to parents workplaces if it's okay and that that seems to make a difference to folks you know when you meet people where they are it can make a difference you know if you want to come to the school i'd love to meet you here but if that's not convenient may i come to your home And again, I I begin with, what is it that you want for your child? This is what we can do, how I can work with your child to help him or her achieve it. What are you comfortable with? What would you like to see your daughter or your son be able to do? And I really do want parents' input. And I want them to know that I'm anxious to get to know their child. And I want to know them too. And I want to know, you know, what are the things, are there things that you want your child or that you've been trying to teach your child that you've had some issues with that haven't gone the way that you want? And if I can recommend some things that they might be able to do, then that's a win for me in terms of their supporting what I'm trying to do with their child. But I've always found it very beneficial to Go to where the child is and talk to parents. And I, I you know i've I've known speech language pathologists who say I, I just can't do that. I'm not comfortable in the neighborhood. I'm not even comfortable in the home. and and I've you know I've been in some homes where their homes were not like mine, that there were things on the floor, in the chairs or whatever that you know, I wouldn't have in that situation. but, I've also found that it's worth it in order to develop the relationship, get to see the child in his or her environment, and begin to talk to parents about what it is that they can do. How can we, and I, you know, and I'll say to parents, how can we work together on this? This is what you and I both want for Jamal. How can we work together on this? Now, I can show you what I'm doing with Jamal when he comes to me. This is what Jamal and I are going to be working on, and this is how we're going to do that. Now, what is it that you can do? Let's talk about what you can do to continue the work that we're doing with Jamal. And for, you know, sometimes that that really works. Once I explain what I'm doing and what they can do, you know, how they can help Jamal practice these words, or uh, these are the sentences that Jamal and I are working on, or these are the sight words that, that I need for you to have him say, you know, every night before he goes to bed. Here, I'm giving you this book. If you could read this book to him, it reinforces the work that we're doing in therapy. And it'll be really helpful in terms of Jamal being able to learn what it is that we're working on. So, you know, I'm a big advocate for to the extent that we can, working with the family and making it a whole family endeavor in terms of helping the child reach the you know the the milestones that that we're trying to achieve
0: thank you and thank you for bringing up just that meeting parents where they're at one of my favorite memories and experiences of being an slp is i went to a family's home and the little girl was so proud to show me her toys yeah. the yeah. rest of the and she was so proud that i came to her home that, you know, the next therapy session, she was telling everyone, you know, Miss Katie came. I was Miss Mac back then, but Miss Mac came, (laughs) Miss Mac came to my house and that she played with my toys with me. And, and it really made, not only made an impact on the parent and the parent definitely was much more, was so grateful that the team came. It wasn't, I didn't go alone. The school nurse and the principal and the teacher came as well for this particular student. And the, the parent was so grateful that we we were able to come out to her to get the IEP signed and taken care of. And and I have I have met parents outside of Walmart before to right? yes. to, to bring them, you know, oh, we're going to be at Walmart for this thing. Can you drop it off here? And that's my favorite thing about the pandemic. Was running materials to parents, dropping them off at parks, or you know, because some families were not comfortable with me coming to their home Mm -hmm. or meeting them outside of the school because the school was closed, you know, they couldn't come in. And I think that that is uh, something I have tried to keep going, even though you know, we're not necessarily doing as much teletherapy. And something that I'm super grateful for is Zoom IEPs because we got a lot more engagement, you know, a family, a, a parent can can easily take an IEP during their lunch break mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on their phone as opposed to and and nobody's gonna think twice nobody's gonna right. think oh this you know we've all been a part of IEPs where a teacher is might make a comment I can't believe this parent can't show up for their kid well we don't actually know what's going on in their home
1: that's true that is very true and and we can't you know we don't we should not take for granted that parents don't care about kids. And some of that comes, you know, some of that is about the culture, but, and I want to get back to that, but you said that the little girl was really pleased that you came to her house and that she could show you her toys. One of the things that's so good about that is, you know, there've been situations in which I've been able to tell a, show a parent how they could use a toy to reinforce what we're doing in therapy. Or I've also had situations in which there's a younger child in the, in the home. And I've told parents, you know, look, this is a baby, but they love, they will love to hear your voice. Read the newspaper to the baby. Or when you're reading to your son, read it to the baby too. And they're like, they don't understand. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. It's important in terms of their language development. So once you get, you know, once you get into the home or get a sit down with a parent, there are so many things that you can do, not only to build rapport, but to help them, in terms of parenting, one of the things that is interesting, I think, and this can be especially prevalent in parents or families in low socioeconomic situations, and that is that parents, and this, I think, is especially the case with African-American mothers, they feel that their responsibility, that their the way they show the love for their children is to have them fed, clothed, and a roof over their head, and to keep them safe, physically safe. There are other parents who feel that, and they see themselves, these mothers see themselves as nurturers and protectors. That's my role as a parent. There are other parents, especially sometimes parents from more affluent backgrounds, who see themselves as teachers. They see themselves as teachers. There are situations in which parents from lower socioeconomic backgrounds feel that the teaching begins when my child goes to school. My responsibility is to keep my child safe, nourished, protected, to get them to school so that the teacher can teach them. There are other parents who feel that they are the teachers, and we see it all the time. You know, when I'm in an airport, I'll see a parent sitting on the floor with their toddler, reading a book, and asking the child questions about the book, right? What is Mary doing? What is Jane doing? On and on, because they they see that as their role. And so their child is going to get to school pretty ready for whatever that teacher has to offer because this is what they're used to. They've been talking about what Jane is doing in the book. They've been saying, this is what I think is going to happen. You know, when they recognize the McDonald's logo, that's reinforced because parents know that's the beginning of reading. But with other parents, that may not necessarily be the case. And so what we have to do is use that maternal instinct that I want to keep him safe. I want to keep him nourished. I want to keep him, you know, domiciled. We need to be able to tell them how they use all of that in terms of getting their child ready for what is going to come when they go to school. And one more thing too, and I think another thing is we really have to be advocates for children who are living in impoverished circumstances. One of the big disappointments of my last year has been the fact that the income tax credit that parents were getting each month based on their tax returns, was not continued. $250 or $300 a month can make a real difference in a family that is impoverished. And so we as speech-language pathologists have to be advocates, I feel, for the things that will enrich a poor child's life. And that's an example. Another thing that we need to do is educate pediatricians about speech and language development. We've all had situations in which, you know, if this child had gotten it to me two years earlier when he wasn't doing all the things that a 24 month old should be doing in terms of speech and language, I could have made much more uh, difference than I'm able to make now. And so, you know, we need to be talking to pediatricians and nurses. We need to be, you know, telling these folk to get brochures in your waiting rooms that talk about speech and language development, so that these parents who are sitting there waiting will have something to take home and will have something to read about how it is that their child's speech and language should be developing. So we really have to be advocates above and beyond only what it is that we do with a child in the therapy room.
0: Are you taking advantage of the certificate tracker? Not only does it store your certificates from all of your evidence-based and practical courses from speechtherapypd.com, but you can also upload certificates earned from other CE providers. It's the easiest way to store and keep track of your CEUs. Just another perk of membership. I 100% agree, and thank you for bringing up, up those points, especially the one about you know, advocating for for our students and making mm-hmm. sure that they're receiving services and and not just speech and language services, but also exactly. you know financial support as well. I mean, that can make a huge difference if sure. if you think about it in terms of if there's more money coming into the home for whatever reason, that might be one less shift or half a shift that a parent could be spending, you know, or less of a headache that a parent can be exactly. Spending.
1: Exactly. Excellent point. Very, very, very true. And so, you know, I think that our our work as speech language pathologists extends beyond the classroom, beyond our therapy room, and becomes very important in terms of advocating for kids who have children who have less. It really does. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. And I mentioned it before, I think that's something I'm so grateful for when it comes to to the pandemic and just how hands-on I was, you know, I got to see into homes during Zoom sessions. I got to, to meet parents and spend much more time with parents that were home with their kids in who wouldn't normally be home with their kids. So thank you for that. We had a question, Jennifer, regarding the parents who see themselves as nourishers or nurturers. Should we encourage them, coach them in doing literacy related activities, even though they don't see themselves in that role as a teacher?
1: Most definitely. Definitely. Because that's a lack of information, a lack of perception of what it is that parents do and and also what their parents did with them. So anytime that we have an opportunity to educate. We should definitely do that, especially if it's going to benefit the, the child that we're working with. And I think, you know, cultural sensitivity is very important. And I think that we can do it in a very cultural way without judging what it is that they're doing. But again, if this is what you want for Jamal, let me tell you a couple of things that you could do that would really help him be able to achieve those milestones be able to have what it is you want them to have, be able to do what it is you want them to do.
0: Thank you. We also had a question earlier that was about when you were talking about doing assessment with Mm -hmm. students, why should we label objects with nonsense words rather than the correct label when assessing capacity for learning?
1: Because that doesn't really give you as good I think as good a view of what the child's processing skills are. And you could do it both ways. You could do it both ways. And that would give you information about, you know, which the child has more information about, or what the child is more likely to be able to handle. The other thing is it may be, it may be a little difficult to find things that a child has never. Seen. Well, I guess you could. You could find things that a child has never seen and use the familiar terms. Could do that.
0: Thank you. Do you have any recommendations for those who are not familiar with an ethnographic assessment or any types of questions they should include in their ethnographic assessment?
1: Yeah, ethnographic assessment. And are you talking about an assessment or an interview?
0: interview,
1: sorry. <laughs> okay. Carol Wesby has W-E-S-B-Y has an excellent article. It was done several years ago, but it is still very relevant in terms of speech language pathologists doing ethnographic interviewing. She talks about grand tour questions and there's some other terms that you'd want to become familiar with, but it essentially uh, gives you the language that you can use for an ethnographic interview and the kinds of questions that you can ask that allow you to get information about the caregiver, about the parent, as well as the child. Questions like, what is Jamal's bedtime routine like? And, you know, that gives you information, you know, that will tell you, you know, is that child being read to at night? Well, if not, maybe that's a recommendation that you want to make. But you wouldn't know that if you didn't do the interview. And so, you know, Jamal stuttered. What, what is Jamal's reaction when he stutters at home? And what kind of reaction does he get from his siblings? Or what kind of reaction does he get from the children that he plays with? All that, you know, is, is really important in terms of your understanding of his behavior and his reaction and also the things that you might do. That would be helpful to him in terms of dealing with his disfluencies.
0: Awesome. Thank you for that. And thank you for that resource of checking out Carol Westby's information on developing the language and the questions that we can utilize as we move forward.
1: And, you know, I've heard, I've had speech language pathologists say to me, you know, look, I've got a caseload of 50 kids. I don't have a lot of time. You know, bringing a parent in for an ethnographic interview, that takes time and it does, but it can be very rewarding in terms of your ability to do meaningful therapy and intervention with a child. Because the more we know about children, the more, again, we know about their homes, about their families, the more we can do in terms of not only understanding what it is that the child needs, but also being able to develop intervention strategies that can be successful.
0: Absolutely. And I always like to think of, you know, this front-loading process of when I spend time at the beginning of the year or, and I'll embed it in my schedule as well, as I make sure that I do two positive phone calls a a week outside of phone calls, you know, that I have to Mm -hmm. make for IEPs or emails or whatever. Because that helps build positive relationships too. And the way that I think about it is if this family trusts me and they know me, then when we get to the IEP, it's so efficient because we've been in communication all long. And Mm -hmm. there most likely is not gonna be any issues because they trust me and the team, you know, and and it's it might be time on the front end, but then you're not spending that on the back end trying to build or repair a broken relationship.
1: Exactly. exactly. Good point. Excellent point. Excellent point. And, you know, parents' perceptions of you, of what's going on at the school, of what it is you're trying to do with their child really makes a difference. It does make a difference because we want them to be allies. And that becomes very, very important. When the child comes home and talks about what's going on in therapy, We want them to reinforce that and to be familiar with what it is that their child is experiencing.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I I think the first few years, I don't think parents knew I existed. And I realized, I remember thinking, how can they not know I exist? And then I thought, well, what am I doing wrong that they don't know I exist? Okay, how can I start building this up? And 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 showing up for parents and making sure that they know I care about their student, they're not just a number on my caseload. So,
1: yeah.
0: and it made a huge difference.
1: Yeah, really important. I live in a I live in Charleston, South Carolina, and the the community just adjacent, North Charleston, South Carolina, has the highest eviction rate in the nation. And so, what we see is that children go missing because they've moved. They may not have a place to live or they may be in a whole different school. And so it's really it really is important to be in touch with parents or at least have some kind of connection so that, you know, you know what's going on in in children's lives. Well, thank you for that.
0: And, you know, I'm sure those that have tuned in, they are probably like minded and are are thinking of examples where they have had a student go missing for that reason or you know, they are probably thinking of an example of where they reached out to the parent and they realized, oh wow, there's been this tragedy in the family, and that's why they mm-hmm. haven't come to school. Exactly. exactly. You know, so, so it is. It does make a huge difference when when we do know the family. Sure. Dr. Davis McFarland, do you mind just recapping your three, two, one—the three things SLPs need to know, and then the resources for us as we close out today.
1: Sure. The three things that SLPs need to know is, first of all, that there are different types of poverty, and that they really need to be aware of that and and what goes on with that as you know generational poverty as opposed to situational poverty. The other thing is that we need to be a good evaluator of research about poverty. You know, the myth that, you know, fewer words are spoken in in working class homes. The fact that there may be different brain development among poor children. Those are things that we need to look at very critically and, you know, ask the question, if in fact that's true, what difference does that make in terms of the difference that I'm trying to make with this child? And the third thing is that it's very important that we do get to know about the child's environment. And that we also explain to children that there is a difference in language or what is expected at school as opposed to home and why. And why it's important that this child be able to master what it is that we have to offer them. And very often that's what I say, what I have to offer you that will help you be a winner. In terms of the resources, I talked about ethnographic interviewing and gave a resource for that. Dynamic assessment, I think, is very important in terms of looking at or being able to assess a child's language learning potential. And what was the third thing that I said? I said so much. Uh, You
0: offered Dr. Heider...
1: That's right. The resources, Dr. Hyder's book on multicultural assessment and therapy intervention, Rosemary McKibben's book on language resources, I think it is, for multicultural children. And then also the very first one that I mentioned, Catherine Crowley's work on dynamic assessment at Teachers College in uh, New York. And if you Google her name, you'll get right to her dynamic assessment work.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Terry. Cable says thank you for the presentation. Wow, we're getting a lot of awesome, and thank you. And I couldn't agree more. This Stephanie says I can understand why you were Asha president, and I say oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you very much, Gaitlin, for the invitation. I'm happy and, to be with you this evening.
0: Yeah, and thank you so much. You know, I thank you to everyone who's joined us live and who will be listening to the podcast. I really hope that you take this information and apply it to just building those stronger relationships with your students and their families. That's my biggest takeaway from everything you've shared. Dr. Davis McFarland, I really appreciate you taking the time. Is there any final takeaway you want for all of us?
1: I don't know. I think I've I've pretty much said it all. You know, one of the things that I didn't mention was the pandemic and the fact that there have been so many things that have happened to children during that time. And, you know, we as SLPs just have to be very sensitive to that because families have been disrupted. You know, children have lost parents and loved ones. I, you know, I have friends who say when my, when my students left me, they were in, you know, fifth grade, they came back, they were in seventh grade and there was nothing to prepare them in between. And so, you know, I think, We really have to be sensitive to that and almost, you know, obviously to the extent that we can uh, work around that in terms of trying to get our children to where they need to be, not only in terms of communication, but other aspects of their life to the extent that we can help them.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. You know that Okay. My biggest takeaway, like I said, is just to, to be gracious and understanding and do what I can to build those stronger
1: relationships with families, Always.
0: which not only is better for the student, but it greatly impacts my job satisfaction as well.
1: Yeah. It is a good feeling. You're right. You're right. Yes.
0: So thank you so much. Thank and you so much, Caitlin. Nice to be with you. Thank you. And to everyone else, thank you for joining us. And just as a reminder, please log into your course portal and complete all modules, especially the one entitled Quiz for Your Live CEUs. And we will see you back here next Tuesday. All right. Thank you, Bye-bye. everyone. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us at This Speech Life. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.